0: HCC Connect is an initiative of Call2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from ASI Europe Limited. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts, academic institution or the rest of the HCC Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Call2Ed website.
1: Hello everyone. I'm Dr. Stephen Chen. I'm the uh, professor from the Department of Clinical Oncology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Today, together with Dr. Joseph LoVe, we are going to discuss a very interesting topic about the use of the VGFR TKIs monotherapy in the treatment of unresectable or advanced TCC in the first-line setting. Uh, We will go into details who can benefit and also the uh, current guidance on the implementation of the dosing strategies and the prehabilitations of patients for the prediction of efficacy and the toxicity in the clinical practice. My co-speaker is uh, Dr. Joseph Lovet. Maybe i let him introduce himself. Uh, Lovet, please. Hi, Stephen. I'm Joseph Maria Lovet.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, participate in this podcast. I am the Director of the Liver Cancer Program, Professor of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, and also Professor of Medicine at the University of Barcelona.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lovet. The reason why we focus more on the VGFR today is because in the past, we all know the sorafenib and also recently the TKI and the ventanib all possess the anti-angiogenic properties. And we believe this is one of the main mechanisms which can help off the tumour and also help uh, uh, treat the cancer of XCC. Uh, however, today we also learned from a lot of preclinical and also our recently published uh, phase 3 IMBRAVE study that sometimes when you combine the anti-angiogenic antibodies with the PD-1 or the PD-1 uh, antibodies, there may also be some immunomodulatory effects apart from the anti-angiogenesis. And uh, this is probably formulating one of the rationale for combining the atezolizumab and bevacizumab, which has now been accepted as a standard of care of the first-line treatment for the uh, advanced hepatocellular carcinoma. However, we know that still a proportion of patients may be benefited from the monotherapy of TKI. Maybe I, I pass the microphone to Dr. Uh, LoBay to tell us more details what patients may be benefited from the monotherapy instead of the atezolizumab combinations. Yes, thank you, Stephen.
0: Yes, certainly. I mean, the proportion of patients that are currently receiving a TESO-BEP is not properly described in studies yet. But the estimate is that around 80% of the patients in frontline advanced HCC and those in intermediate HCC progressing to TES are probably exposed to this combination. This may vary region by region. For instance, it may be a higher proportion, I would say, in the Western world and a lower proportion in Asia. So why a patient uh, should eventually receive other treatments, not a TesoVeb in frontline? Or in other words, which are the contraindications for a in frontline? Well, we know that these, let's say, 20% of the patients that are not suitable for atezolizumab in frontline, they may present contraindications. The first contraindication is liver transplantation. Certainly using checkpoint inhibitors in patients undergoing a liver transplantation have been reported uh, to induce graft rejection and is a risk. I would say that this is one of the contraindications that have more wide consensus. The second one, and it was stated in the paper, is that the patients within six months prior to starting a EZOVEP, they need to be explored for presence of esophageal or gastric varices by GI endoscopy. And those at a high risk of bleeding either need to be treated generally with banding for large varices or need to be excluded Because sometimes even with banding, the wound healing might take between two to six weeks and then you are postponing the starting of the treatment. So this may be a second contraindication because it is well known that Bevacizumab induces high risk of bleeding. The third uh, area in which there is consensus is the severe autoimmune disease. Here it has not been well established what severe means. Certainly, some patients with hypothyroidism, for instance, that are properly controlled, eventually some physicians feel comfortable to treat those patients with checkpoint inhibitors. But any case of severe autoimmune disease, particularly, needless to say, autoimmune hepatitis, so these are uh, formal contraindications for Atezobab. Steven, therefore, having... Describe a bit the contraindications for this combination in Frontline. Who do you think can benefit from TKIs in Frontline?
1: So uh, the question is, what type of patients in our clinical practices that we think uh, will be most benefited from the TKI instead of artisobab, right? Is this your question? Yes, exactly.
0: So we know that in Frontline, we have sorafenib and lenvatinib. Accepted in guidelines, and we can talk extensively about that for those patients that are not candidates for atezobep. So, how you will select these patients uh, to receive either sorafenib or lenvatinib in frontline?
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, actually, uh, I can go back to the um, literature on the monotherapy use of the sorafenib and the um, lenvatinib. For sorafenib, we have a two uh, landmark paper. One is the SHARP study led by Dr. Love, uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. Another is, uh, we call it AP sharp, which is uh, the phase three trial on the sorafenib versus placebo in advanced XCC in Asian populations, uh, published in the uh, Lancet 2009 uh, by Dr. Annie Chen. From these two studies, we know that sorafenib have a better overall survival and also the time to progression than the placebo. And then we know that in 2018 uh, there's been another phase 3 clinical trial we know as the VFLEX study published by Dr. Kudo in Lancet which is a study comparing uh, the lenvatinib head to head to sorafenib in the first line setting and in this study it was uh, found that the lenvatinib is non inferior to sorafenib in the primary endpoint of the overall survival but uh, in the secondary efficacy endpoint like the uh, response rate and also the time-to-progression or progression-free survival all showed a uh, favourable result uh, favouring the uh, lanventative. To me, one of the most remarkable finding is uh, talking about the response rate of uh, the lanventative in the reflex study. According to the Modified Resist response, actually the response rate is over 40%. This is uh, actually the highest response rate as reported in the literature. Even when you look at today's other, PD1 or PDL1 combination, even atezolizumab combinations, the response rate is around close to thirty. So I would say some people may think, oh, monotherapy TKI may not be as effective as the atezolizumab combinations. But if you go to the literature, especially in terms of response rate, the monotherapy levetiracetam actually is quite quite impressive. So if you ask me, and I think it also a lot in Asian uh, countries, a lot of Asian doctors. If the patients are not suitable or for some reason they could not prescribe that bath, I think the live will be one of the popular choices. And uh and I also know that the mechanism may of action may also play some role. Maybe Dr. Love, could you share with us something about the, what's the difference between the in terms of mechanism of action between seraphilip and the Levetilib, which may guide our treatment?
0: Yes, well absolutely. So for sorafenib, as you know. And when we reported the, the paper in New England 2008, we were questioning, okay, is this a pure VHGF inhibitor? Or beyond that, uh, there are other mechanisms. And certainly serafinib and also Lemba, I have to say in, in the lingo of FDA, is a dirty molecule. This means that it's a multi-kinase inhibitor blocking. In the case of serafinib, around 40 kinases. Of course, BHGF receptor 2 particularly, is critical in HCC progression. And we know that because in second line, there is a drug, this ramucirumab, that just blocks BHGF receptor 2 and leads to survival benefits. And this is a, a clean idea. But sorafenib is doing additional things, is blocking platelet growth factor receptor, is blocking RAF signaling. So there are several... Uh, pathways that are abrogated with seraphine. Lenvatinib has an additional layer of complexity in my mind that is critical in the pathogenesis of HCC, is that lenvatinib is blocking FGF receptor 1, 2, 3, and 4. And why receptor 4 of FGF is critical, because we know that there is a, an oncogene in HCC that is FGF19, that is the ligand of FGF receptor 4, that is overexpress, highly overexpressed in 25% of the patients. And just by blocking with a TKI specifically FGF receptor 4, you are achieving objective response of 15%. And uh, we, we have published that in Cancer Discovery, and therefore, the fact that Lemba is blocking all these kinases, not RAF, but all the other kinases, platelet-derived, BHGF, and on top of it, also kit but on top of it, FGF receptor 1, 2, 3, and receptor 4, I think it's critical for the potency of the drug. You were sharing before how you would decide between sorafenib and Lemba, and it is true that sometimes to describe that in guidelines is difficult in a sense that since it's not supported by very high level of evidence, sometimes it's, it's difficult to help to navigate the physicians. But it is true that the meta-analysis we published uh, with the SHARP and the Asia Pacific trial with sorafenib. We show that patients with hepatitis C virus infection respond better to sorafenib and also patients with liver-only disease. Conversely, in the subgroup analysis of the Reflect, it seems that Lemba responds particularly better in patients with hepatitis V virus related to HCC and patients with high tumor burden or even patients with high AFP. I think that this is just some tips for uh, to navigate. Another question I think that we can bring here because this is now a debate. So I think throughout the guidelines of management, Stephen, there is no question on, okay, Tesobeb is a standard of care in 20% of the patients. We should not give this treatment because of contraindications. And then we have another frontline, Lemba or sorafenib. But a question that is emerging now is, okay, what happens with the sequencing after Atezobet? What happens there? And my question, I understand that we are framing this discussion in the first line setting, and this is an important thing, but also is important in order to understand how we're using these drugs, even in patients progressing to Atezobet. Because as you know, there has been a controversy and uh, in some guidelines, it is supported to respect the hierarchy established. So progress, progressors to web should receive Lemba or sorafenib, And this is in the guidelines of ASLD that we published in Hepatology 2021, the updated guidelines of ESL as well. But then in ASCO, they say, okay, all TKIs are accepted. But we prefer Sorafnip and Lemba. These are the GCO guidelines published at, at ASCO. And then I think that the more uh, appealing conversation uh, occurred as a panelist of ESMO, and we published that this year, because in ESMO was such a debate between those saying, okay, we need to respect the hierarchy. Therefore, after the tesobeb, we should recommend Lemba. Or Sorafenim and others that were saying, no, no, there is no evidence for that. So all drugs are equal there. And even we had a, a, a boat there and it, it is a spell out in the guidelines. So there is some controversy that I wanted to bring it here. But I want you, uh, uh, Steve, if you can explain a bit, what's your view of these TKIs in frontline in real world? in areas that are not particularly framed in the trials, particularly, I am curious about your opinion on child puke B patients, particularly these B7 patients, no ascites that we see commonly, or these patients, eventually, sometimes be 2 So what's your take on the use of these drugs in, let's say, extended indications in real world, and if you want to share your experience with that?
1: Yeah, thank you, uh, Joseph. I would say this is a really great question because, uh, of course, uh, in the clinical trial, for example, in the VFLEX study, basically only patients with child P class A liver functions uh, were recruited in the clinical trial, while all the patients with child pill B were excluded. And uh, therefore, sometimes uh, we don't know the exact toxicity profile and the efficacy of the, say, levandolib or sorafolib in those uh, populations. But unfortunately, in the real world, these are the group of patients we are facing every day in the clinic. Patients with some degree of ascites, some portal hypertension, cirrhosis, LB grade 2, or even child POB 7 or 8. So uh, this is very important. And I think one of the things that can be addressed by to this population is uh, by the real world data. Uh, in fact, uh, there have been a number of real world data published, and I think one of the most uh, relevant ones is uh, there's a paper published by a Japanese colleague, Maruta S., uh, published in the liver cancer in 2020, they reviewed the experience in the Laventilip and they deliberately looked at those patients with expanded indication from the reflex study, i.e. those patients with child B function, patients with uh, main portal vein invasion, for example. And they found that actually in their study, of course, the number are not huge for these uh, populations, but in their study, they found patients with child pill, uh, B7, actually the tolerability and the efficacy are also impressive, which is quite similar to the uh, child pill uh, class A. But of course, we need to uh, interpret this uh, with caution because this is real-world evidence. Maybe those patients are highly selected patients. Maybe there's some reporting bias. But I think this is the best available evidence to help to guide us uh, how to use the Levantilib if we really want to apply to those patients uh, which do not fulfill the refresh study. But I I would uh, make a caution that Still, in the initial phase 1, 2 study, the lavatolib actually is associated with toxicity, renal and also hepatotoxicity in patients with poor liver function. And therefore, in the real world, when we really want to prescribe to our patients, we need to use it very cautiously, probably with reduced dose and with a close monitoring. So uh, I, I think this is so far my my experience. And also, I would like to also point out, recently, doctor Vogel has also published that patient with a better liver function, LB grade 1, actually it's doing much better in terms of progression-free survival and the overall survival as compared to the patient with a LB grade 2 when they're receiving the lavantinib or even sorafenib in the reflex study. And this highlights important point that uh, we need to preserve the hepatic function of the patient. We need to start the systemic therapy, if possible, earlier instead of later after heavy pretreatment with TACE or some other local treatment. Uh, if the patient has bad liver function to start with, the outcome will be suboptimal because they have uh, worse hepatic functions. So I think uh, this is my experience with those uh, real-world data. So Dr. LaVey, I noticed that sometimes in the real world, some doctors prefer a lower dose of Leventilib, uh without making reference to the body weight of the patients. What's your view on that? Do you think it's a good practice? Or do you think we should adhere to the recommendation of sponsor And also, what do you think about if finally the patient requires those modifications? Well, I
0: have to say that I always recommend to stick to the dose that has been uh, approved according to the frame of the trial. I think that it's very important to try to adhere to the initial dose recommended by the physicians and, and the company when they run the trial because this is the dose that we know that is effective. I'm not saying that other doses can be effective, and certainly now we will discuss about dose reductions and dose interruptions, but certainly I would recommend for uh, Limba, as you know, 12 milligrams, in patients with uh, a weight above eight, uh, 60 kilos and um, 8 milligrams for patients below 60 kilos that are very rare in the West, I have to say. It's a very marginal proportion of patients. Not so, for instance, I understand particularly at least the, the experience I know uh, uh, reading the papers in Japan, that there's a high proportion of patients there that may adhere to this dose to start with. Then... Well, I think that we need to, when we are analyzing Lemba and or or even sorafenib in Frontline, I think that we need to take into account uh, three parameters. The first parameter are the dose reductions. The second parameter are particularly treatment-related adverse events leading to withdrawal. And these are two different things, because if you have an adverse event, you have certainly to manage that according to certain guidelines. Imagine for sorafenib, grade one was uh, symptomatic treatment, grade two dose reduction, grade three, four dose interruption. And this is generally the, the rule applied in general for Lemba as well, right? So what is the percentage of those reductions because those reductions doesn't mean that uh, there is a treatment failure there so in reality in all these trials those reductions are ranging between 30 to 40% of the cases and these patients actually are the body of the study that lead to differences in survival so that those reductions are also providing a benefit. Otherwise, the trial would not be possible probably to hit superiority, imagine at the beginning with sorafenib but non-inferiority for limba compared to sorafenib. For limba, I recall that uh, those reductions are around 40% and the first step if you are at 12 milligrams is to move to eight and then to move back to four, if still something happens but my recommendation will be okay from 12 to eight. And then at one time point, if the patient has recovered, try to rechallenge 12, depending on the, on, on, on the, of the adverse events. The other thing is, as I mentioned, treatment related adverse events leading to interruption. And here we have that for sorafenib generally, what has been reported in several trials, because as you know, has been also the control arm for several trials, is between 10 and 15% of the patients that should discontinue the drug, generally as a result of grade three hand-foot skin reaction. In Lenva, it's slightly less as around nine, 10%, what has been reported. And as you know, for Tesobeb, that you cannot reduce the dose then the withdrawal has been around 16% in the trial and even 7% of the patients should remove both treatment at Tezo and BEP. So this is somehow the figures that we need to keep in mind. Also, the, there is a, a critical figure, but it's out of the equation in, in, with these drugs that are grade 5 related adverse events. So treatment related adverse events leading to death that generally are 2% or less with these drugs. So in my mind, I think that this is somehow a way to frame it. I know because I have had several interactions, particularly with Asian physicians, that they like sometimes to have a run-in period with four milligrams, and then move up to eight and 12.
1: Can you brief us about that, Stephen? Actually, uh, I know in the real world, sometimes, uh, especially initially when the drugs were launched, uh, sometimes clinicians were more cautious. So uh, they sometimes prefer, you're right, uh, start with a reduced dose. for example, for sorafinib, 400 milligram QD daily, or lanventilib, eight milligram, even four uh, milligram daily. On one hand, yes, this may be safer for the patient, but on the other hand, we understand that dose intensity is important for the keeping the efficacy uh, of the TKI. There are so many different subgroup analysis showing that patients with a higher dose intensity, actually, they tend to uh, have better outcome uh, when treated with TKI. So, uh, nowadays, I think the condition, the, the phenomenon has changed gradually. Initially, 10 years ago, when we started Surafli, everyone is afraid. Everyone say, oh, we see a lot of handful skin reaction. But nowadays, you know, a lot of physicians uh, in Asia, I think in the world is the same. We tend to start with uh, full dose now. The good thing is that you really uh, subject a patient to the maximal recommended dosage. And if the, as mentioned by Dr. Love, if the patient have any problems, actually we can adjust the dose or even reduce the dose. We hold the drug for a while before allowing uh, the patient to be, have a toxicity recovered to grade one. I think this is not treatment failure. It's just a personalization of the dose according to the patient toxicity. If you start the patient with a low dose, uh, sometimes uh, you actually, you may lose the time period to treat the tumor. So I I think uh, this takes some time, but with more experience with TKI, I think the phenomenon of so-called running phase is uh, less observed nowadays in the world, including Asia. So, uh, Dr. Love, what is your, the message you want to give to our audience? Say what will happen next in the 2022 or in 2023? What do you think is the important findings of future studies or what are the take home message you want to give to our audience? Sure.
0: Well, first, I will give, if I can, a very uh, short summary of our discussion. I would say that in frontline, a desobep is the standard of care, but this is around 20% event, maybe. More than that, particularly in Asia, up to 30-40% of the patients that will not be exposed to Atezovib. And in this situation, the frontline TKIs are Lemvatinib and sorafenib. The second thing is that these drugs even are currently considered by most of the guidelines in patients progressing to Atezovib in second line. How to choose between sorafenib and Lemva? Uh, We uh, have some tips based on subgroup analysis and meta-analysis generally, uh, sorafenib works better in EPSI and liver only, eventually limba in high tumor burden and aggressive tumors. Mechanism of action, there is clear overlap, BHGF, platelet-derived, so on and so forth. Sorafenib is also targeting RAF signaling and lemvatinib is also targeting FGF receptor signaling, particularly receptor four. Uh, in terms of dosing, uh, it is true that we recommend start the dose that is recommended, 12 milligrams for lemma in patients weighing more than 60, 8 milligrams below 60, and for sonafib 800 milligrams, and then reduce the dose that may happen in 30 to 40% of the patients according to adverse events. Treatment withdrawal as a result of adverse events occur in 10, 15% of the patients. This is what has been described. Second part that you were asking was the future. I think that we're in a very exciting time is the, uh, not now, but one year or two years ago, we're in a down of a new era. I remember when I presented the, the sorafenib trial at ASCO in 2007, uh, that uh, it was said, this is the down of a new era, right? The there of the TKIs, right? Now we're at the down of the era of the combination therapies. And we have a tesobet. this is the first in class. We don't know if will be the best in class, right? It could be the best in class, but hopefully at one time point, there will be a combination that will be superior and all of us also will be happy for that. There are several combinations ongoing, as you know. So the first combination certainly that uh, we were involved and we published that in GCO, is the Lemba Pembro phase two data. The phase three is the LIB02, 02, 002. Also, you have the Cosmic 312 with Ateso Cabo. Uh, you have the Checkmate 9DW with Nebo EP with two IOs that eventually will not uh, expand a lot the target population that may benefit, but the response may be deeper or more durable. You have the Himalaya trial also in the setting of a combination of IOS with Durba, Treme. You have other trials, the Rational 301, you have several trials. So my impression, and this is only in advance because I think that part of the business is also in early and intermediate. In early, there are four trials in phase three that might become standard of care if positive and will be a breakthrough because we don't have adjuvant uh, therapies after resection, local ablation. And in intermediate, we have TAS for 15 years and we have been unable to improve the bar of survival that is around 30 months for patients at intermediate stage. So these trials combining TACE plus checkpoint inhibitor TKIs so we have the Emerald-1, 0 12 the Checkmate-74W, and Renotase, and others. These trials also may improve the outcome of the patient. So I envision the future, uh, a near future, in two, three years, very
1: exciting in this field. Thank you, Dr. Lovet. I fully agree with you. 2022 will be very exciting years for XCC. We have many combinational uh, trials to have a result. But don't forget about the monotherapy TKI. Uh, even you look at the Surah Flip Arm in the I Am Brave study. Uh, in the past, we have, uh, six to eight months or 10 months. Nowadays, we have 14 months survival. And also recently, the Cosmic 312 study, we know that, uh, despite the progression-free survival is better in the combination, but actually in the overall survival, interestingly, it seems, uh, the combination is unable to beat the surround Flip Arm, uh, easily. So I think in the future, certainly combination is the key but there's still a lot of patients who may not be suitable or be able to afford the combinations. Maybe monotherapy TKI like Mavadidib or Sirurafelib has a role for our patients in daily clinical practices. So uh, thank you very much, everyone, for the attention. Thank you.
0: This HCC Connect podcast was brought to you by Call2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit call for more information.